You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 22, verses 19 through 20, as Jesus is celebrating his final Passover with his disciples, as he's celebrating and partaking of this Seder meal, this supper, we read that Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them, his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Like, don't overlook the significance of this moment. In a singular instance, Jesus took a portion of the traditional Seder meal that Jews had been celebrating on Passover for every generation since the Exodus, and he redefined its meaning for the rest of eternity. On this night, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus established what Christians throughout the centuries, have referred to as either the Lord's table, the Eucharist, the Holy Sacraments, or communion. What Jesus did this evening, which is also recorded in Matthew 26 as well as Mark 14, it was more than just redefining components of a ceremonially Jewish dinner. But Jesus was establishing a new sacrament that was to be central to a church that would also include Gentiles. Like consider that in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, writing to a church made up largely of Gentiles who had never celebrated the Passover, he writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Then Paul adds to the Corinthians, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Something that was predominantly Jewish has now become fundamental to a church made up of Gentiles. It's worth pointing out, at a minimum, All of Christianity believes that in instituting communion, Jesus was giving deep significance and meaning to both the bread and the cup. Sadly, though, arguments and divisions have arisen over the muddled nature of the phrase Jesus uses when he refers to the bread as his body and then the cup in his blood. Like, for example, the Roman Catholic Church holds to a position known as transubstantiation, trans meaning to change. Orthodox Catholics believe that during the actual consecration of the Lord's Supper by the presiding priest, the physical elements of the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, experience a literal transformation into the actual body and blood of Jesus. This reality explains why only then the priest is allowed to handle the elements themselves. To be fair to such a position, we should note that In the middle of what's known as the bread of life discourse, Jesus makes some really interesting and bizarre statements. 
recorded at the beginning of, of John chapter 6, verse 51. Let me read them for you. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Let's be real. Some bizarre statements. In the 1500s, Martin Luther presented a variation of the Catholic position. He called it consubstantiation. Con meaning with. Luther believed that the bread and wine do not become the literal body and blood of Jesus like Roman Catholics, but instead coexist with the body of Christ so that the bread and the wine remain both bread and wine as well as the body and blood of Jesus. John Calvin kind of adds a little clarity, saying that this particular miracle takes place only in a spiritual sense, enabled by a person's faith. A contemporary of Luther a Swiss reformer named Zwingli, argued that the bread and wine were actually just mere symbols that represented the body and the blood of Jesus. When Zwingli debated the issue with Luther at Marburg, he made the case that Jesus also said, I am the vine and I am the door. But in these instances, we understand he was speaking symbolically. I would, I would add that that position is largely consistent with the illustration of Jesus being the bread of life. In a twist to Zwingli's position, Pastor David Guzik writes, quote, According to Scripture, we can understand that the bread and the cup are not mere symbols, but are powerful pictures to partake of and enter into as we see the Lord's table as the new Passover. It's been said, and I agree with this, that while the Roman Catholics overemphasize the elements, Protestants underemphasize their significance. As you work your way through these various positions as to what Jesus is really trying to articulate, there are, and I'll go through them quickly, five overarching concepts you should keep in mind. First, after Jesus instituted communion, he interestingly still refers to these elements as being literal bread and wine. In Mark chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus will declare to his disciples, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Secondly, there is no indication that the disciples ever viewed the bread and wine as actually being Jesus' body and blood. In fact, if this had been their understanding of what Jesus was saying, they probably wouldn't have participated. Because according to Leviticus 17 verse 14, consuming human flesh and blood, well, it was outlawed, forbidden, taboo. Thirdly, Jesus instituted communion, and a lot of people overlook this. He instituted communion before his crucifixion. Like, there's no question that in this first moment, the bread and the wine weren't actually Jesus' body and blood. Why? He hadn't died yet. Fourth, according to Hebrews 10,
the Bible states that Jesus was sacrificed once for sin. And that this one-time sacrifice is more than enough. The simple fact remains that there is zero scriptural evidence that a born-again, spirit-filled believer needs to do anything to maintain their salvation, especially through a continued partaking of the Lord's Supper, as Roman Catholics believe. Finally, and we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking this idea, but in the context of the illustrative nature of the Bread of Life discourse, and in light of the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus uh, was building upon elements included in the Seder meal. It's evident that Jesus was, well, he was redefining important symbols and wasn't speaking literally. When Jesus spoke to his disciples about eating his body and drinking his blood, in no way is he saying that you and I have to actually eat his body or drink his blood to be saved. In John's gospel alone, Jesus has repeated on numerous occasions before the bread of life discourse that for a person to experience everlasting life, all they have to do is come and believe in him. It's an act of faith. The only act required for salvation is your faith. Never miss that. Your faith in the larger work that Jesus would accomplish on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus references eating his body, when he references drinking his blood, what he's doing is he's illustrating a much larger idea. You see, in its most simplistic form, just as bread and wine are only useful for the physical man if they're consumed and entered the body, so must Jesus, so must we consume him, that Jesus must be consumed in our spirit, in the spirit of man, for there to be any life in the spirit, in the spiritual part of you. Again, the idea of eating and drinking It's not meant to be taken literally, but to be seen illustratively. Don't forget, this was a culture built on dietary laws. Like you were what you ate. As such, eating and drinking, it indicated oneness with Jesus, which was important. Beyond that, the reference to the body, the flesh, and the blood was Jesus' way of, of tying this illustration to the sacrificial system. Within context, it is the identifying of ourselves with the body and both his crucifixion and later resurrection that communion was instituted to remind us of. And yet, while most Christians comprehend the importance of Jesus' crucifixion, the sad fact of the matter is that few know the mechanism by which any of this actually works out legally. Like, friend, if you don't understand how Jesus saves, you'll never understand the significance of communion. To answer these things, I want to talk about what I call the doctrine of transference, which is the act, the Levitical act, of transferring sin from a person to a sacrificial offering within the right standing of that offering coming back to the individual. Others have referred to this as the great exchange. In the law, this idea of transference was central to the entire sacrificial system established by God. In a general sense, aside from identification, the act of laying your hands upon an innocent animal before that animal was slaughtered, it was all about transferring your sin to the sacrifice. It was then 
as a result of that transference, the death of the animal was accepted by God as the payment for your sin. It's called atonement. Sacrificial atonement. Now, with the debt of your sin being satisfied by the offering, the blood of the animal, well, it could be used for all kinds of really cool things. Specifically, the blood would be used as a cleansing or a purifying agent. You see, whatever the blood from an accepted sacrifice was sprinkled upon, that thing was declared to be ceremonially clean in the eyes of God. This would happen with all the different things within the tabernacle and later the temple. It also happened to the priest and had certain applications uh, for, for other people and certain uh, parameters. An example of this, I'll, I'll read it for you, is in Leviticus 14, verse 14. We read that the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering, and the priest shall put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his foot. The blood being used as a purifying or cleansing agent. And yet, the problem with this Levitical model of transference was twofold. First, the process of transferring sin from a human to an innocent animal, it only really afforded a person a temporary payment and a provisional cleansing. Why? Well, the, the sacrifice was inadequate. To this point, the author of Hebrews correctly observes that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. You see, atonement and the Levitical ideal was at best seen as a covering for sin and not the full removing of sin itself. Like in the end, the frustrating reality of transference was the only legal way to permanently satisfy the debt of sin in order to bring about a complete cleansing from sin would be for a human sin to be transferred to a sinless human sacrifice. But that leads to a big problem, doesn't it? Like even if such a sacrifice, let's say, existed, which it doesn't, the very act of transference would have been criminal, wouldn't it? Like according to the law, laying your hands upon a sinless man would have been viewed as, as murder. It would have been a crime. It would have been unjust. You see, the only legal way transference could really work, the only way it could occur between a human sinner and a human sacrifice would be first the sinless sacrifice would have to decide on his own to take your sin upon himself. Like you couldn't transfer it, he'd have to take it. And secondly, the sacrifice would have to choose to offer himself to die for that sin. Like in fact, the sinner, you and I, we can't be involved in either decision and the work has to be done on your behalf without your involvement. Which brings us back to the cross. In John 6, verse 51, Jesus said, I shall give my flesh for the life of the world. Like the great reality of this event is that Jesus' death on the cross paid for the sins of the world because first he was willing to act as both the sacrifice, he willingly transferred or took your sin upon himself, and he was willing to act as the priest. He could make the offering. He would incur the wrath of God the debt your sin demanded. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, it's said of Jesus, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those other high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. But you know, it gets even better than this. 
Because your sin was transferred to Jesus on the cross. Not only is it by his death, the debt of your sin was permanently satisfied. But now, for the first time, a complete cleansing of sin is made available by his blood. Again, in Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14, we read, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, the body of Jesus, it took away your sin. While the blood of Jesus transferred back to you the righteousness of Christ. This is why the Bible declares that you are now justified in Christ Jesus. That when God sees you, he sees you just as if you'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. But how is that even possible? When God sees you, he actually sees his son Jesus. Like we know, the old covenant of the law, it was inadequate. Because it demanded we make continual sacrifices. On the account, the blood of an inadequate offering could only provide a temporary covering. And yet, because Jesus was human and sinless and willing, his sacrifice is not only sufficient, but it's permanent and lasting. The new covenant no longer requires you to make any sacrifice at all because his blood has permanently cleansed you of all unrighteousness. All your muck, all your sin, all your filth has been taken away. Like This is such a critical concept. I'm going to give you a few more passages of Scripture just to kind of validate it, to back it up. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which never takes away sins. The problem. But this man, after Jesus had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In Romans 5, verse 9, Paul writes, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Ephesians 1, 7, In Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 7, That the blood of Jesus, His Son, it cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus loved us and washed us from our sins. In his blood. Do you see why Jesus' work on the cross was so revolutionary? And the reason becoming one with that work is so essential for your salvation? The body and the blood? Like, don't forget, the goal of transference in both the Levitical law and the New Covenant, they, they were the same. Right standing with God, brought about by the atonement and cleansing of the blood of a sacrifice. And yet, the way transference works in each instance, it's radically different. The goal's the same. The mechanism to accomplish that work's much different. In the law, transference required of the guilty to come and make continual sacrifices to atone for sin in order to be right with God. All a man had were these ineffective sacrifices 
However, in the new covenant, transference requires nothing at all from the guilty because a sacrifice was made by Jesus to atone for your sins so that you might be permanently right with God. In the new covenant, all a man needs is Jesus because he's proven to be an able sacrifice. And one, the law. Transference is all about you, the condemned, laying your hands upon a sacrifice, a lamb, to achieve a right standing with God. And the other, the new covenant, transference is all about the sacrifice, the lamb, laying down his life in order to make you right with God. And one, the law, you look upon your sacrifices to earn God's forgiveness. But in the other, the new covenant, your faith looks upon the sacrifice who gives you, bestows to you, has earned for you the forgiveness of God. This is why the old covenant was in agreement with God based on your works, while the new covenant is in agreement with God founded upon His grace. Because of the insufficiency of the Levitical sacrifices, as well as the effectiveness of Jesus' work at Calvary, the satisfying of debt, the atonement of your sin. And the cleansing of sin, your justification, your, your sanctification, you being right with God and forgiven, it can never be earned through the sacrifices you make to God. Instead, these things, incredible things, are given to you by a sacrifice God made for you. When Jesus says in John 6, verse 53, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you, this is what he's discussing. This is the illustration, the picture he's painting. In fact, Paul, the apostle, will build on this concept, writing in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we, in turn, might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, let's get back to communion, kind of how all these things weave together. When Jesus, on this Last Supper, where he'd soon be betrayed and arrested, tried and executed, as he's instituting the Lord's Supper, as he's taking these elements from the Seder and doing something different, redefining their meaning, he does something that blows my mind. Jesus specifically ties himself. He connects the crucifixion with two, specifically two, elements of the Seder in order to illustrate the work he would accomplish on the cross and why it's so important we identify with these things. This thing we call the Passover Seder, the Seder dinner. The, the word Seder just means program, and this was quite a dinner with program. There were 15 parts of the Seder, and all of them were symbolic, but bread. Bread played a significant role in three of them. Three of the 15. Bread was first introduced in the fifth step of the Seder, known as the Yahats. Three pieces of stacked matzah bread, which was unleavened flat bread, no yeast. They're presented to the father of the home. The middle piece of the three, which was known as the afikomen. It's removed from the other two. It's crushed. It's broken. It's carefully wrapped in linen. It's hidden away for later in the meal. The next time bread comes into play was directly after the main course when the eighth step of the Seder, known as the Mahatsi Matzah, occurred. Literally, the eating of the matzah. 
At this point in the dinner, the two remaining pieces of unbroken matzah, they're passed around the table, they're dipped into the same dish, and they're consumed by all. Uh, Student of Scripture, this is when Jesus identifies Judas as his betrayer. Once the main course has been finished and the Seder is nearing completion, the twelfth step, known as the Zafunin, occurred. The father would ask at this point for that hidden piece of matzah, the middle piece, the afikomen. He asked that it be retrieved and formally presented. Then the father would distribute the broken pieces to everyone at the table. And he would proceed to explain uh, the meaning of the afikomen. Now, keep in mind... At this point in the meal, the 12 disciples, they've heard the same explanation, the same definition for the afikomen their whole lives. For 1,500 years, the three pieces of matzah always represented Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. And as the middle piece, the afikomen signified Isaac. The father would tell the story of Abraham being tested by God, led to a mountain of Moriah to offer his only son. The Afikoman illustrated Isaac's willingness to surrender himself to be sacrificed in obedience to the will of his father Abraham. And yet, when Jesus and his disciples reached this point in the Seder meal, instead of connecting the Afikoman to Isaac, we're told Jesus took the bread, the Afikoman, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, which means he'd probably left the Afikoman to break to this point. And he says, this is my body. They're expecting a story about Isaac, but he says, this, guys, this is my body, which is broken for you. And as they go to eat, he says, do this in remembrance of me. See, Jesus is telling these men, telling us, the Afrikoman would no longer represent Isaac, but would forever illustrate his body, which was about to be broken for them. On the cross, Jesus, the Son, willingly offered himself he offered his own body to bring about the sacrificial atonement for sin. This was a work Jesus didn't need to do for himself. He was sinless. It's a work Jesus did, and he even says this, for you. Something you can't do, but it must be done for you. Instead of incurring the wrath of God on, your, on the account of your sin, the debt your sin demanded, Jesus is willingly offering himself, his body, in your place. This is why every time you come to the table, every time you pick up that little piece of unleavened bread, the afikomen, you've been commanded by Jesus, your Lord and Savior, to remember His sacrifice made on the cross for you. And He asks that you identify with it. It's why we're to eat it, to consume it. This act of consuming the bread, it illustrates, it signifies, it, it, it helps me identify this oneness and communion with Jesus and His sacrifice. While you do this, you're to remember that Jesus willingly chose to bear your sin, that He willingly took your place, that He willingly offered Himself as a sacrifice so that you might be spared the wrath of God, so that you could be forgiven and set free from sin. The bread, it serves to remind you that it was Jesus who was whole and broken so that we who are broken might be made whole. <laughs> but that's not all. We're told after this, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. During the Seder, again, 15 steps, there were four different cups, cups of wine. 
passed around the table, and they all were designed to remind the Hebrews of four specific promises God had given the people through Moses. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, God declared, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Four cups. First, there was the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out from under their burdens. Followed by the cup of deliverance. I will rescue you from your bondage. Then the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And finally, the Seder would conclude with the cup of restoration. I will take you as my own people. While all four cups are significant in their own right, following the eating of the Afikoman, the Barak, or the third cup, the cup of redemption, would be presented. This cup of wine symbolically represented the shed blood of the sacrificial lamb that was originally applied to the doorpost in Egypt that first night, which caused the angel of death to pass over, sparing the firstborn. (laughs) How fascinating that of the four cups Jesus could have chosen, it's this cup, the cup of redemption, that Jesus now chooses to redefine. And notice the emphasis of his words center on the cup and not its contents. He says, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Whereas the bread had always been symbolic of his body, the actual wine contained in the cup of redemption, it had always represented the blood of a sacrifice, the lamb on the doorposts. But as we've already noted, that blood was insufficient. You see, when Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, He's saying something important. He's saying, while this cup has always represented the redemption of His people, now this cup, it would be filled with something sufficient. Not the insufficient blood of insufficient sacrifices, but the sufficient blood of His sacrifice. The cup would be the same. Jesus replaces the contents. In this moment with His disciples, Jesus is telling, he's telling them, he's telling us that redemption will no longer from this point forward rely on an old covenant filled with blood of sacrifices that don't work. Redemption would now forever rely on a new covenant sealed by the blood of a sufficient offering, a sufficient sacrifice, my blood. This is why every time you come to the table and take the cup of redemption, You're to remember the result of the sacrifice Jesus made for you on the cross. While His body provided atonement, it paid a debt you couldn't. The blood? Well, there's an exchange. See, the blood bestows a permanent rightness with God. Yes, Jesus' body was broken as a sacrifice to satisfy a debt you couldn't pay, but it's by His blood that you're now cleansed once and for all of sin, past, present, future, permanently making you right with God forever. It's why we sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friend, your sin may have been transferred to Jesus on the cross, but most incredibly, it was the spilling of His blood that now transfers back to you the righteousness of Jesus. 
You know, I've always been struck by the reality that in regards to both the bread and the cup, Jesus commanded that we do this in remembrance of him. Jesus didn't give a lot of commands, did he? This phrase, do this, it's not a suggestive term. It's strong. It's directive. There's an importance to our remembering. Christian, we're to partake of the, the bread and the wine Not because the the elements become the body and blood of Christ and are somehow essential for salvation. Heaven forbid. And yet we should also refuse to relegate those elements as just being symbolic. Symbols. Instead, knowing what these elements represent, the bread and the wine, this act of coming to the table to partake, it should be a moment that we practically commune with the resurrected Jesus. It should be in taking these elements and consuming them that we have a greater sense of the oneness we have with Him. His body broken, His righteousness bestowed. This is why the Apostle Paul presents a stark warning to anyone that would come to the table. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27-29, through Paul writes, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. These are holy elements. The word that we use, partake, it's probably limiting in and of itself. You see, by eating the bread and drinking the cup, there's an interaction that's occurring with Jesus in the spiritual realm. It's a reminder, a reflection. It's material to my faith. It it tells me of transference. It reminds me of a great great exchange that's occurred. In many ways, the very taste of the unleavened bread, it shouldn't be that enjoyable. It isn't, let's be real. It's tasteless. But that reminds me that Jesus died of my sins. I mean, that taste, it should be bitter, it should be sobering. But how amazing that the experience of sour bread is immediately followed up by the sweet taste of fine wine. The reality of what redemption required of Jesus, it is a difficult thing to swallow, but the results of His sacrifice in my life are not only sweet, but satisfying. I can keep coming back to the table remembering Even if I've had a terrible week, you've paid the penalty of my sin, and I am right before you. It brings me back to the cross. It's interesting that from the first Passover to roughly the year 1869, so 3,300 years, the cup was always filled with actual wine. In truth, it was only during the temperance movement that a Methodist pastor and a staunch prohibitionist figured out how to pasteurize grape juice specifically to be used in the Lord's Supper as a substitute for wine. This Methodist minister's name was Thomas Welch. You see, just as the unleavened bread was important, for it represented the sinlessness of Christ, and even more so, if you look at the the pizza of matzah bread, you see it's perforated, reminding me of the piercings of Christ, and it's striped, how through His stripes we've been made cleansed, the unleavened, the sinlessness. It was always specific that it be the unleavened bread. Without yeast, without rising, without that corrosive element, Jesus was pure. 
But you know, I believe that there's something we've lost by substituting wine with grape juice. In his book, What Would Jesus Drink? Brad Winnington, he writes that of the 247 times in the Bible that we have references to alcohol, 40 are negative, 62 are neutral, but there's an overwhelming majority that are positive, 145 times. In the Bible, wine can be a picture of God's blessings. It can be a picture of the joy that we experience in the Spirit, in Christ. Unlike bread, which yields sustenance, wine produces an experience. In moderation, of course, wine eases a person's burdens. It fosters merriment. You know, wine should remind me as I drink it after the bread of the effects of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who because of Jesus, because of His sacrifice, because of of the consuming, it's part of me, it's in me, I have the Spirit who yields what joy and love and peace. It's not an accident that for wine to develop its sweetness, for it to develop its effect, death first has to occur. For a grape to become wine, it has to be crushed. It has to be stored away. In the picture clear, it was through Jesus' death and His burial that the Holy Spirit was ultimately given after His resurrection. We're to drink of the cup to be reminded of the experience of new life we've been given in Christ. When you come to the table and consume the bread, When you partake of the wine, never forget the essence of your salvation and the incredible favor and life you've been given by God was not found in a Levitical model that demanded more and more and more sacrifices and offerings from you. Instead, those elements serve to remind you that your relationship with God is based on a new covenant built on nothing more than one sacrifice Jesus made for you. And yet, we come to the table not only to remember intellectually these truths, we come to experience something, to relate to Jesus, to commune with Him. That's why we call it communion. Communion is to be a tangible experience. It's reverent. It's personal. If you don't understand these things, dare not take it. But communion adds material to that which is inherently spiritual. It invites me to participate. Communion is essential for it brings each of us back to the cross, reminding us that Jesus has already made a payment. Jesus has already set me free. Jesus has already made me right. I am forgiven. The the devil can beat his condemnation drum, but I can come and plead the blood, the Christ, what he offered for me, that his grace is more than enough. Communion. You know, I had no part and the sacrifice. But it does give me an opportunity to be involved. An invitation is extended for you to come, for you to receive it, for you to identify with it, for you to become one with Jesus by faith. Charles Spurgeon once said, I think the greatest moments we are nearest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. I agree. As the hymnist wrote, we so often sing, my hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest friend, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And so, Father, Lord, we thank you for those words. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Zach Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Zach's teaching ministry by visiting zachadams.org.